0: All right, church, we come now in our worship of God together. We come now to the preaching of the word of God. So if you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 21. We're going to continue in our study of this book together this morning. Let's pray before we open God's word. Father, we come today in Jesus' name, and Lord, we even ask for help not to treat that as common, Lord, to come to you in Christ, standing on the finished work of Christ, and Lord, we ask that you would bless us today, Lord, we ask that you would draw near to us through your word, we pray this morning that your word would run to and fro in our midst, and accomplish your purpose in this church and in our lives. Lord, we pray that you would bear witness to the God-breathed nature of the Bible, that you would speak to us today. And Lord, we ask for this blessing again in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, church, we're going to start together this morning by reading God's Word together. And we're going to cover the whole chapter, Deuteronomy chapter one. So I want to ask you, it's cold in here, so you probably enjoy this. Uh, I want to ask you to stand for the reading of the word of God. Let's stand and let's read God's word together. Deuteronomy chapter 21. This is the word of the Lord. If in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess, someone is found slain lying in the open country and it is not known who killed him, then your elders and your judges shall come out and they shall measure the distance to the surrounding cities and the elders of the city that is nearest to the slain man shall take a heifer that has never been worked and it is not pulled in a yoke. And the elders of that city shall bring the heifer down to a valley with running water. Which is neither plowed nor sown. And shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. Then the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come forward. For the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to him and to bless in the name of the Lord. And by their word, every dispute and every assault shall be settled. And all the elders of that city nearest to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley. And they shall testify, our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it shed, except atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed. And do not set the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people Israel so that their blood guilt be atoned for. So you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from your midst when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. When you go out to war against your enemies and the Lord your God gives them into your hand and you take them captive... And you see among the captives a beautiful woman, and you desire to take her to be your wife, and you bring her home to your house, she shall shave her head and trim her nails, and she shall take off the clothes in which she was captured, and shall remain in your house and lament her father and her mother a full month. After that, you may go into her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife but if you if you no longer delight in her you shall let her go wherever she wants but you shall not sell her for money nor shall you treat her as a slave since you have humiliated her verse 15 if a man has two wives the one loved and the other unloved and both the loved and the unloved have borne him children and if the firstborn son belongs to the unloved then on the day He assigns his possessions as an inheritance to his sons. He may not treat the son of the loved as the firstborn in preference to the son of the unloved, who is the firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the firstfruits of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his, verse verse 18. If a man has a, a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, he will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his of his city at the gate of the place where he lives, and they shall say to the elders of his city, This is our stubborn and rebe- this is our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. And all Israel shall hear and fear. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. This is God's word to Grace Community Church this morning. You may be seated. All right, we continue on this morning. In this miscellaneous section of Deuteronomy that runs from chapter 19 to chapters 26. And in our chapter today, Deuteronomy chapter 21, Moses covers five laws. You can see that in the headings of your English Bible. Number one is the law of the unsolved murder. You see that beginning in verse 1. Number two is the law of a captured female You see that beginning in verse 10. Number three is the law of the firstborn's inheritance. You see that in verse 15. Number four is the law of the rebellious son. You see that in verse 18. And then finally, number five is the law of a hanged criminal. And you see that in verse 22. Now... At first glance, these laws seem completely unrelated. And there is some miscellaneous nature to this section of Deuteronomy. But on closer look, you see that each one of these laws has a theme that relates them together. And that theme is life in the land of Israel. These are regulations for life in the land of Israel. And the breaking of any of these laws, Moses says, is going to defile the land inheritance that God is giving his people. And you see him repeat this three times in this chapter. Verse 9, you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from your midst when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. Verse 21, you shall purge the evil from your midst and all Israel shall hear and fear. And in the last verse of the chapter, verse 23, You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So God is about to bring them into this land. He's about to give them this land gift as an inheritance. And sin, breaking God's law, is going to defile that land. And it's going to threaten them to be purged from that land. Just like the inhabitants who were there before Israel. Moses has already told them why the land is not to be defiled. Listen to this in, in Numbers chapter 35. He says, you shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell. For I the Lord dwell in the midst of the people of Israel. And so that that's why there's tremendous importance given to the holiness of this land, is because the living God dwells in the midst of this land. And this land is not to be defiled by human sin. You, I also want to want you to notice the bookends of this chapter. Moses begins chapter 21. And ends chapter 21 with the same theme of a dead body defiling the land. So there, there's, there's a unity here. There's a, there's a connectedness in this chapter. He begins the chapter with a scenario of the dead body of a victim. And we'll cover that in a minute. And yet he ends the chapter dealing with a scenario of a dead body of a criminal. And so this entire chapter is legislation guarding the purity of the land, the inheritance that Israel is about to be given. So we're going to walk through these five laws together, and we'll begin with law number one. This is the law of unsolved murders. Look closely at verse one. Moses sets the scenario here, and he says this in verse one. And this is heartbreaking stuff. Okay, verse 1, someone is found slain, lying in the open country, and it is not known who killed him. Okay, that's, that's heartbreaking. That's an image bearer of God, cut down in a nowhere place where nobody lives, and, and, and the murderer seems to have gotten away with this killing. In our modern world, such crimes They get filed away in what we call cold case files and forgotten about, but not so in the law of Moses. Moses gives detailed instruction about this ritual that is to be performed for the removal of guilt for this unsolved murder. The guilt for the shedding of innocent blood. Look at verse 2. Here's the ritual. The nearest city has to be determined. Okay. Verse 3, then the elders of that nearest city, they take an unyoked heifer, okay, which is a female cow that hasn't yet given birth, okay, specific type of animal. So the elders of the nearest city take an unyoked heifer. And then verse 4, the neck of that heifer is broken in a valley of running water. Very detailed legislation here. Then verse 6 and 7 say this. As that happens, the elders of the nearest city, they wash their hands over the heifer whose neck has been broken in this valley. And as they wash their hands in that stream of flowing water, they testify to their innocence. We didn't shed this blood. Neither did we see this blood shed. And then in verse 8, they, they pray for atonement. The elders of the nearest city, they pray that the Lord would accept this ritual as atonement for the people of Israel. Verse 8, Accept atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, and do not sell, set the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people Israel. Now, What this ritual was is a visual representation of that guilt that is staining the land needing to be removed from the land. Something has to happen. Can't just sit in a cold case file and be ignored. There's guilt there. An image image bearer of God has been cut down. There's objective guilt and it's staining the land and it needs to be washed away. And Moses gives this legislation for exactly this purpose. The flowing stream in the valley, it symbolizes the carrying away of this guilt. And the washing of the hands in the valley symbolizes the innocence of the elders of the nearest city. Listen to this comment. This is from commentator Christopher Wright. He says this, What ought to strike us from this law is not the oddity of a cow with a broken neck in an uninhabited land, but rather the required response of the whole community for a single human death. And I think that's exactly right. The whole land is called to render a response to God to plead for atonement for blood guilt staining the land. And you see why we have trouble with this concept is we have lost the concept of corporate guilt in our modern culture. Okay. In our individualistic culture, in our individualistic thing, uh, way that we think, we've lost this concept of corporate guilt staining the land. Corporate guilt staining a nation, pleading for forgiveness or mercy on behalf of the whole. Okay. We've lost that in our modern world. But what we see here is blood guilt defiling the whole land, Bringing guilt on the whole community and the elders of the nearest city, they're tagged as the representatives to deal with this problem. Okay? Notice that. They didn't commit this crime, but they have a duty to perform this prescribed ritual to seek forgiveness and atonement uh, from God for this crime. They act as representatives of the whole community. Okay, the elders and the priest here. Um, the removal of guilt on behalf of the whole community. So this is the first law. Okay, The law of the unsolved murder. We'll double back to this in just a moment. The second law begins in verse 10. And this is the law of the captured female. And the scenario is, is laid out as... Israel going to battle and conquering their enemies. That's the scenario. A God-given victory uh, for Israel over their enemies. Now, on first glance, okay, this looks like Moses and the law of God is condoning harsh treatment. But once you understand what he's actually legislating here, it's the exact opposite. He's protecting the vulnerable with this commandment. And I want you to see that. Unmarried women were particularly vulnerable in ancient culture. Okay? This is why uh, uh, such a tremendous importance is attached to marriage and all the rights and privileges that marriage uh, uh, grants to an unmarried female in these ancient cultures. And so the situation here is this. Israel wins a battle, Okay, and it's not against the Canaanites because that's a whole other set of warfare. They win a battle against a distant enemy. They conquer them in battle. And in that war-torn country, there are these destitute women. And in, in the midst of this situation, an Israelite soldier sees a beautiful woman among these captive females. And he desires to marry her. Now what is assumed here is that the woman is unmarried and lawfully eligible for marriage. Okay? God's law doesn't say that you can just go take somebody's wife. Okay, uh, It is assumed that she is unmarried and lawfully eligible for marriage. Now, one of the things that happens in war-torn countries, okay, and you even saw this recently with the conflict of Israel and Hamas, but it happens in Africa, it happens all over the world, happened in Ukraine, okay, is conquering soldiers, one of the things they are known for is raping and pillaging the nations that they conquer in. In other words, they come in, they take over, they kill everybody, and they rape and pillage, okay? It happens all over the world. It happens in every generation. Victorious soldiers, they feel free to do whatever they want to do. Okay? We won, we do whatever we want to do. And it's evil in the sight of God. What I want you to notice here is what the soldier is not free to do. Okay, The soldier is not free to, to rape or to enslave any of the captured females. He is only free to marry her. Okay. He is only free to marry her. She is to be given the full status and dignity of a wife. Okay. And even if, Moses says, even if, verse 14, for whatever reason this marriage is broken or he no longer continues to be her husband, which, by the way, he's not condoning this in verse 14. He's regulating. If you find yourself in this situation in verse 14, he says you cannot treat her like a slave. She is to be dealt with as a wife. And so this law protects the rights and the dignity of conquered females as a result of warfare in our world. Now, of course, we would prefer to live in a world that had no war no war-torn countries no destitute females okay of course we would prefer that but one of the things you'll find is that the law of god gives regulations in the midst of these unfortunate circumstances that regulates them and mitigates some of the the evil effects of these circumstance you'll see that in several weeks with with Moses's law of divorce so that's the law of the captured female number two number three we have the law of the firstborn's inheritance in verse 15 and again we find the law of God regulating an unfortunate reality in the ancient world this time it's polygamy okay a man has two wives Moses sketches it this way he Loves one, he hates the other one. Okay. Now, again, God's law is not prescribing this. It's not holding this out as a good thing. It's regulating this common practice in the ancient world. It was ancient Near Eastern custom that the firstborn would receive a double portion of the family inheritance. Okay. This is one of the ways that families were preserved in Israel and here the situation is presented that this man in a polygamy, polygamous marriage having one wife that he doesn't love and the other wife that he does does love and Moses says that he is not free to transfer the rights of the firstborn from the son of the unloved wife to the son of the loved wife okay so what this law does is it, it checks, it regulates sinful partiality okay, in Israel. Even the father's partiality over his children. Now, you may have noticed as we read this and even uh, unpacking this together, this law describes the exact situation of Jacob. Did you notice that? In other words, this is exactly what he did. Okay, Jacob had a unloved wife, Leah, and she gave him his firstborn son, right? But Jacob also had a loved wife, Rachel, and what Jacob did is he transferred the rights of the firstborn to the son of his loved wife, Rachel, named Joseph. And Ephraim and Manasseh received a double portion of the father's inheritance. They received Joseph's share of the inheritance and so one of the things that happens to, to, to cover over uh, uh, human sin or to tolerate human sin is sometimes you'll have people appeal back to the patriarchs uh, we can have two wives because Abraham had two wives okay or we can do this because the patriarchs did this. And one of the things that the law of Moses is showing us here is that that situation that happened with Jacob, that's not supposed to be a norm for the people of God. That's not norm. In fact, that's sin for the people of God. Okay, Sinful partiality. He says you can't do that. That was number three. Number four, the fourth law is the law of the rebellious son in verse 18. Now, one of the things I just want to make sure you understand here is when he says if if a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father, okay, this this law is not talking about a naughty kid, okay, or what we would refer to as a bad kid, like uh, uh, in a general sense of like, man, this kid, man, he don't listen to anything, okay. This is a more extreme situation. This is a serious troublemaker in Israel whose rebelliousness has taken on the form that makes this man a danger to society. Okay. This child is to be punished, Moses says, but only after repeated and diligent parental discipline. Look at verse 18. Though they discipline him, He will not listen to them. So his behavior is a threat to society and his parents are to lead this prosecution under the jurisdiction of the elders of the city. So the parents have a role here, but it's not just parents doing whatever they want. They're acting as representatives, legal representatives of the judicial system. Again, what is the purpose? To remove... To remove, verse 21, evil from the midst of the land. Okay, this law reminds us of the nature of the the fifth commandment honor your father and mother. That commandment sets a trajectory for your whole life. Okay, it's foundational, It's, it's one of the first commandments that any kid ever learns. Okay, the first test of uh, what what a child will do with authority is when mama and daddy begin to say, no, no, no. Daddy said no, no. Mama said no, no. Okay, that basic relationship of a child responding to the authority of their parents sets a trajectory for an entire life of living under the loving discipline of. God. The fifth commandment protects us. It it prepares us for a life of submission, obedience to the the one true authority, God himself. And the reverse is true. That commandment, habitually disobeyed, sets someone on a trajectory of rebelliousness and stubbornness, lifelong uh, uh, drenched in uh, 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 stubbornness to the living God, it's it's a foundation commandment. Rejection of the fifth commandment sets us on a trajectory to live a life of rebellion against God, and you see that rebellion come to its most severe form in this law of the rebellious son. Number five. The fifth law here, verse 22, is the law of the hanged criminal. Now, the situation here is that of a lawbreaker who's committed a crime that is punishable by death. Okay, He's committed a crime that the punishment for that crime is capital punishment, the death sentence. He's committed that crime, then he's executed for that crime. Then, after his execution, he's hanged in public. His dead body is hanged in public. A public shaming ritual okay, is what Moses is referring to here. The hanging is not necessarily the form of execution. It's not how he died, which was typically done in the ancient Near East by stoning. You were executed by stoning. The hanging happened after the stoning, after the execution, to show that this hanged man was under God's curse. Okay. This public shaming was to be restricted, Moses says, to one day so as not to defile the land. Now that's one of the pieces of legislation that's behind The death of Jesus and the quick removal of his body. There was a man named Joseph of Arimathea who goes to Pilate and asks for the body of Jesus. And Jesus is taken down from the cross and buried on the same day that he died as an attempt to observe this legislation right here. So it's not to bring defilement on the land. Now again, these five laws function to protect the land of Israel from defilement of sin. They were to keep the land pure because Yahweh dwelt in the midst of his people. Now as we see these miscellaneous laws in chapter 1, chapter 21, I have three doctrinal reminders for you today, okay? Okay. This chapter, I want to point out three biblical doctrines from Deuteronomy chapter 21, and I want to hold them out for us as we summarize what Moses teaches here. Number one, we see the doctrine of corporate guilt. Number two, we see the doctrine of total depravity. And then number three, we see the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. And so I want to take a few minutes to walk through each of those doctrines and how they are presented to us in Deuteronomy 21. And so let's start with that first doctrinal reminder this morning. Okay? The mention in that first story, the law of the unsolved murder, the mention of this concept of corporate guilt. And what I mean by that is something is required of those who did not actually commit a crime. Okay, This concept of corporate guilt in verse 8 should remind every single one of us without exception that we are members of a guilty race. We are members of a fallen race. All of us, okay? We are descendants of sinners, and that makes us sinners, okay? We are fallen by nature. We were born under the curse of Adam. Adam was the leader of the human race, and when he sinned, he plunged the entire race and the entire planet into guilt, okay? That's the worst gift you have ever received from your great-great-grandparents as he plunged this world into sin and guilt and death. And this is true from the very moment we were conceived. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, by nature, this is two Christians, he's reminding us, by nature we are children of wrath. We are children of wrath. This is true about us from the moment of conception. Psalm 51 verse 5, David says this. He says, I was brought forth in iniquity. And so this becoming guilty before God, it's not something that happens to you later on. Though you add a a mountain of guilt later on. Okay. It's something that you're born under. It's something that needs to be dealt with from the moment you are conceived. And what does this mean? If we're all members of a guilty race, if we are corporately in solidarity with Adam, the sinner, then that means that every single one of us need atonement. We need our sin washed downstream the sin of this world needs to be washed downstream as it were never to be seen again which is what this removal ritual points us to it needs to be dealt with it should cause every one of us the fact that we're members of this fallen race should cause every single one of us to cry out verse 8 accept atonement O lord so that's doctrinal reminder number one. You are a sinner. You were born a sinner, and you need atonement for your sin. There's guilt that needs to be dealt with. Number two, the execution of the rebellious son, beginning in verse 18, should hit home with all of us. And you say, why so? And I say, because that's us. That's you. And I don't know if you've ever stared this reality in the face, but you are a rebellious son of God. You are the rebellious one. How do I know that? Because the Bible says we have all sinned. Every single one of us have broken the law of God. There's not a righteous man on the face of the earth, Ecclesiastes says. We're all sinners. Ephesians chapter 2, by nature we are children of wrath. And here's the thing. You're still a rebellious son right now in this moment if your life hasn't been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is, this is default setting. Rebellious, stubborn, headed to ex- execution, And and, and this is one of the the ways that Moses describes Israel uh, and all the biblical writers in the Old Testament describe Israel all the way through the Old Testament. Stubborn and rebellious. They're stubborn and rebellious. Listen to a few of these. Psalm 78, verse 8. A stubborn and rebellious generation... A generation whose heart was not steadfast and whose spirit was not faithful to God. That's what it means to be a stubborn and rebellious man or a stubborn and rebellious woman. You won't obey God. You're not steadfast to God. You're not faithful to God. You're stubborn. Nehemiah 9, verse 29. And you warn them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously, and they did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck, and they would not obey. It's one of the metaphors that God's word uses to describe stubbornness is a stiff-necked animal. You got an animal yoked up, and you're trying to pull them Go right, go right, and they're fighting against you every turn, stiff-necked. It's one of the metaphors that God's Word uses to describe you. How many times in our life has this reality been played out over and over and over again? God says, go right, go right, go right. No thanks, I'll go left. You know where the boundary is and you step across it anyway. One of the ways to describe that is stubbornness, rebelliousness jeremiah 5 verse 23 but this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart they have turned aside they have gone astray now again the bible says that this is true of every single one of us we've all sinned all of us have sinned against god but who is god God is the father, the the parent who has faithfully disciplined us. It's not that we have been rebellious and our our father, our our creator God has has just been taking a nap. He's, He's warned us along the way. He's faithfully disciplined us and we still, we still go in our rebellion. If you're still in this state of rebelliousness towards God as an unconverted man or woman, old or young, let Deuteronomy 21 be a warning to you. This, this law of this rebellious son, let this be a warning to you, how much danger you are in. The Bible says, for all who are unrepentant, for all who persist in this rebellion, who are often reproved yet stiffen their neck, the Bible says there's coming, listen, a breaking beyond which there is no remedy. That's a reference to the final judgment. To anyone who persists in this rebellious state before God, you are this one who will be executed for your crimes. Though your Father in heaven has faithfully pursued you, faithfully pursued you, the only hope for you is to turn from your rebellious ways and find atonement for your sin. And that's the call of the Christian gospel. you got to stop living this way. you got to turn from your sin. Look at what Christ has done for sinners. Which brings us to the third doctrine that we see in Deuteronomy 21. The public shaming... Of this dead criminal in verses 22 and 23 is a reminder to all of us that Jesus Christ died under the curse of God. Let me explain that to you this morning. We know that the Lord Jesus Christ was condemned for the crime of blasphemy, for which he was not guilty. And he died the death of a criminal. And he died that death unjustly. Now I want you to notice this twice in the book of Acts. Three times total um, in his writings. But twice in the book of Acts, Peter relates the death of Jesus Christ to this last paragraph in Deuteronomy 21. In other words, he finds something here that is fulfilled in the death of Jesus Christ. I want to read these to you. This is amazing. Acts chapter 5, verse 30. Peter says this to the crowds. He says, The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. He does it again in Acts chapter 10, verse 39. He says this. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. Now, friends, that phrase, hanged on a tree, this is exactly what Peter is pointing to in God's word, is the last two verses of Deuteronomy 21. And so when he's preaching the gospel in the book of Acts, He's saying Jesus is the the condemned, hanged criminal of Deuteronomy 21. You did this to him. That's part of his gospel sermon. He wants to show us that the death of Jesus was the death of the criminal in Deuteronomy 21. And so church, there's there's something important here for us to understand. we got to understand this. There's something about the manner of the death of Christ, crucifixion, hanged on a tree. There's something about the manner of his death that explains the meaning of his death, cursed by God. I'll say that again. There's something about the manner of the death of Christ, hanged on a tree, that reveals to us the meaning of the death of Christ, cursed by God. And this is what Peter is trying to get across as he relates the death of Christ back to the death of the Deuteronomy 21 criminal. As he's trying to get this across. He died under the curse of God. You don't understand. He is cursed by God on that cross. Now, the death of Christ is also different than the death of the criminal in Deuteronomy 21. One obvious thing is that the death of the criminal in Deuteronomy 21 was was the death of a guilty man. And then he was hanged and shamed uh, and, and, and publicly portrayed as dying under the curse of God. Yet the death of Jesus was the death of a righteous man, not a guilty man, but an innocent man. And yet Peter says that innocent man was cursed by God. So I want you to think for just a minute, if he was innocent, why did God curse him? I mean, we would understand, like, uh, they got it wrong, the Romans got it wrong, the Jews got it wrong, they murdered him, but how do we square, if he was innocent, how can he die under the curse of God, and that's exactly what is being portrayed to us in the word of God. How could both of those things be true? How can an innocent man die under God's curse? curse and this takes us to the design of the gospel the design God's design of salvation how God saves his people from their sins you see by God's design the death of Christ was curse bearing he's under the curse of God yet it's also a substitutionary death it's a curse bearing death but it's also a substitutionary death. In other words, yes, he dies under God's curse, but not for himself. He's innocent. He does this for others, for sinners, for his people. It is in their place that Jesus Christ swallows up the curse of God. The apostle Peter, again, I'm telling you, he's infatuated with this theme of Christ on the tree. He says it again in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. Listen close. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. He references Deut- Deuteronomy 21 again. And so friends, what we have here at the end of this chapter, according to the Apostle Peter is Deuteronomy is preaching a gospel sermon to you this morning. And so by faith, I want you to see him there. I want you to see what is being portrayed to us. See him there. A perfect, righteous man. The Lamb of God. The Son of God, the eternal Word made flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. See Him there, hanging there. Battered, the Gospels say. Bloodied, the Gospels say. He's naked, He's shamed, He's crucified. Dead, dead, dead. And there's never been a man more righteous than him. And yet he is swallowing up the curse of God. He's absorbing every ounce of the curse of God. And friends, what is that? That is a reminder to every single one of us. That shameful death of a criminal is the death that we deserve for our sin. Jesus is taking what we deserve And it's also that shameful death is a reminder of what he suffered in our place. He took what we deserved. And as he took it, he fully bore it in our place. And so I want you to to just see that this morning. No one has ever loved you like Jesus Christ. How do you know that? He took the curse of God for sinners. The Bible says it this way, that he demonstrated his love for us. How? That while we were enemies, while we were sinners, while we were far off, the Bible says Christ died for us. And when he died for us, he died a curse-bearing death for us in our place. Substitutionary atonement. Deuteronomy 27 verse 26, it says it this way, cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. God's word pronounces a curse upon everyone who breaks his law. And that's what our disobedience brought upon us. Our disobedience to the word of God To the law of God, the commandments of God, it, it made us liable to the curse of God. And this is the curse, the curse of the law, the curse of God that Jesus, Peter says, bore in his body on the tree, in our place. He died in our place, the Bible says. He died for our sins. He bore our curse. Jesus is our substitute. This is that whole lamb theme that, that runs all throughout the scriptures. It's even portrayed in Deuteronomy 21 as that heifer, that, that, that something's happening here. There's this gracious substitution for the guilty. The Apostle Paul also relates the death of Christ back to Deuteronomy 21. He does it in Galatians chapter 3. He says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us and then Paul says this for it is written cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree citing again Deuteronomy chapter 21 so when Jesus dies when Jesus is crucified it's more than just uh crucifixion is a is a really bad way to die which it was Okay? There's something happening more than that. There's something behind the scenes, as it were. There's something in the spiritual realm, as it were. The very curse of God, our curse, is falling upon the Son of God. And that means that Jesus died the worst death imaginable. You ever considered that? It was impossible for it to be worse than it was. Why? Because he died the death under God's curse. This is what Christ. Christ trembled, the cup that he trembled to drink in Gethsemane was the cup of wrath that he must drink from the Father. But the gospel reminds us that this curse-bearing death, it totally removes all the guilt of sin for every person that trusts in Jesus If you trust in Christ, the Bible says there's no more curse. There's no more condemnation. There's no more wrath. And for all who repent and believe the gospel, the blood of Jesus, what is it like? Well, it's like this flowing stream of living water in Deuteronomy chapter 21 that carries away our guilt and our sin never to be seen again. We find atonement finally forgiven in the presence of holy God. And so let's close our time together today worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Church, let's pray together. Father, we thank you today for your word. And we thank you for the gospel. And Lord, we pray that you would magnify the work of Christ in this church and in our lives. Lord, we pray that you would revive us, that you would revive our love for Jesus Christ. We pray that you would exalt the all-sufficiency, the the matchless glory of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Lord, we pray that you would drive this gospel deep into our souls, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.